what he's going to establish here is that in the center is the tabernacle in the courtyard. Now remember, what is the most important room in this tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. That is the presence of God. And what sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat, yes. And then what's on top of that? The cherubim, yes. And then what's on top of that? Good, because at least you remember. That's good. Makes you feel good. The pillar of fire. Now remember, it's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And remember, that symbolically represented the presence of God the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, as well as the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant was cut with a torch of fire and a smoking torch of smoke. And so it reminded that promise, that covenant. So basically, what is sitting on top of this? Yahweh himself. Basically, they viewed Yahweh sitting on his throne up in the sky. Now, they didn't believe that heaven was up there. They actually believed that heaven was everywhere. It's just the reason his throne is way up there is because all kings are higher than you are. And so that's just where his palace is. So he was sitting up there on the circumference of the earth. Isaiah says that, that Yahweh sits on the circumference of the earth and all men are like grasshoppers to him. He's sitting up there on the throne and they viewed that the pillar of fire was his legs coming down from his throne onto the earth And the Ark of the Covenant was called the footstool of God. And so it wasn't that the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God, it was the footstool of God. And through this pillar of fire, Yahweh was linking heaven and earth together. And he was showing that he was the God of the sky, of the heavens, sorry, and of the earth. And then you're going to see this theme all throughout the prophets and stuff. Like Jonah says, I worship the God of the heavens and the earth. And everybody's wowed by that because no other God can claim to be the God of both of those like Yahweh does. And so he's showing that this is his throne. So this is his throne. This is his footstool. And they would see that. So the divine king of the universe has his feet resting within their camp amongst them. And so he's dwelling there. So what he then does and I'm going to kind of go in reverse order. He's going to deal with the 12 tribes first and then the Levites. But for the sake of helping you understand the picture and the layout, I think it's better to work outwards than inwards. So I'm going to go in reverse order of how the chapters are laying it out. So knowing that there's really 13 tribes in the nation of Israel helps you understand how God can have the tribe of Levi immediately surrounding the tabernacle on all four sides And then he has 12 tribes surrounding the tabernacle and the tribe of Levi on the outer part of the tabernacle with three tribes on each side. So Levi is divided into four clans, family, whatever term you want to use. Typically people call it family, but it's technically a clan. And so you have Moses and Aaron, remember they're brothers. They have their family and they were told to camp out on the east side. And then there's the Kohathites, they were another clan in the Levites, and they camp out in the south, and then the Ger, Ger, um, Gershonites, and then the Merarites. Okay, we'll talk about them in more detail. So right now I'm going to just skip them, and I want to move to the 12 tribes because that's what God starts with when he numbers them all. So then he tells the 12 tribes to organize around them. And he's going to put three tribes on each side. And so basically counts them off. And the first tribe that he starts with is in the east. In the east, he tells each... So you have Judah, who's the head of all the tribes. 
But then Judah's also the head of these three tribes. And then Reuben's going to be head of these three tribes, Ephraim the head of those three tribes, and Dan the head of those three tribes, but Judah's the head of them all. So Judah is the head, and they're in the east. And remember what is significant about the east here when it comes to the tabernacle. Yes, that is the gate. Okay, that's the gate. It's the only way into the tabernacle. So the first thing he talks about is that Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon are to camp out on the east side. Now remember, east is important. In the beginning, east was considered a place of hope and promise. Why? Because in the east was the Garden of Eden. So by placing the Garden of Eden in the east, God is saying the east is a place of hope and promise. Now why was the east the place of hope and promise? Because it's in the east that the sun rises. The light of God, so to speak, is first seen in the east, and it goes dark in the west. Now, this is where it kind of gets weird and confusing, and I don't know why God did this. He just did. When Adam and Eve sinned, though, the entrance into the Garden of Eden was also in the what? East. So when he kicked them out, they had to move what direction to leave the Garden of Eden? East. Well, if they're in the garden and the entrance is in the east, then they have to move east to get out the door. Okay? So they move eastward. From that point on, the Bible is going to develop this theme that moving eastward is bad. That moving eastward is bad. Not like literally real life, like you can never go east or you're sinning against God, but in a narrative kind of a sense, in a literary sense. And so he makes this clear by the fact that Adam and Eve moved eastward away from God. Then we're told that Cain, when he got punished by God, he moved eastward, and then they built the Tower of Babel in the east. And even the book of Revelation, Babel is in the east. Babylon is in the east. And then we're also told that Sodom and Gomorrah was east of the land, and Lot kept moving eastward out of the land. And then when Jacob distrusted God and he fled from God after he deceived his brother, he went eastward. And so over and over and over again, moving eastward is negative. It's seen as bad. And moving westward is good because when you move westward, you're moving through the gates of God and into his presence. And so moving westward. Now, the other reason that this is bad is because remember when you're living in Israel... If you're living in Canaan, what's to the west of you? The sea. And the Israelites were not seafaring people. They feared the sea. And in fact, all through the ancient Near East, the sea is a symbol of chaos. Because the sea is chaos. I mean, even today with all of our modern day technology, we cannot control the typhoons and the hurricanes. I mean, look at what it's done to us this year. All these storms and stuff. So it was a symbol of chaos. So what is behind them? It's chaos. Which is interesting because going westward, sorry, um, sorry. So there's this other theme, I said that wrong, got to There's this other theme, though, that hope comes from the east. Now, this is really weird, and you, you just got to bear with this because the Bible does this a lot. Like when we get into Samuel, God is going to be pro temple and anti temple, He's going to be pro David and anti David, He's going to be pro king and anti king. You're like, how can you be both? It makes sense once you begin to develop it. So in one sense, moving westward is good,
But at the same time, God is developing this concept that hope comes from the east. Because the hope is the restoration of the garden. And so the chaos is in the west at the same time as hope is in the east. So what way are they supposed to look for for the Messiah? The east. The star will come from the east. And the Messiah, when he enters into the tabernacle, he comes from the east. When you get to the Gospels, they don't focus on the fact that Jesus is going west into the tabernacle or temple. They focus on the fact that Christ is coming from the east towards the tabernacle because he's the hope. He's the star in the east. He's also the sun that we're awaiting. And so there's this weird, when it comes to direction of people's lives, when they move eastward, it's bad. And when they move westward, it's good because that's a sin. But the way that God designed creation, the sun comes from the east and the chaos is in the west and your hope comes from the east because it's a restoration of the garden. And what God is trying to show you is that God set it up to be one way, but sin has flipped it all around. And so our actions are always moving away from the tabernacle. If we would never have gotten kicked out of the garden, there would have never been any reason to see the east as bad. Moving eastward. But God wants to restore it and redeem it back so that the east is good again. And so that's where hope. And the point is that Christ is going to redeem the east. Now, I know that seems really weird to us because you're like, God, Christ is redeeming the East. But it remembers all theological points trying to make a bigger point, that God can redeem anything and will redeem anything. And so the East is considered that um, when it comes to the tabernacle, the East is good, but when it comes to men sinning, the East is bad. Welcome to a paradox. Paradoxes when things look like they contradict each other, but they don't really. And God loves paradoxes. He loves them. So Judah becomes the most important tribe. Now, the other thing is that this is supposed to guard the east because this is the entrance in the tabernacle. So then he puts the next three tribes in the south and the next three tribes in the west and the next three tribes on the north side. Now, here's the other point. I made this back in Exodus. This tabernacle design... If you were in Exodus, we talked about how there was a courtyard, and within the courtyard there was a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was divided into two rooms, the holy place where the priests could go and the holy of holies where God dwelt. That is not an original design by God. Now, I know that sounds really bad. I mean, he probably did originate the design, but he did not come up with it in the Bible, and that was the first time seeing all other nations had that kind of layout. You see that in the ziggurats. You see that in temples. This layout for a temple exists in many other other cultures. Because what God does is he uses the language that we already know to communicate to us. It doesn't do good. If Christ came back today and came right into this room, it would not benefit him at all to start speaking Russian to us. Okay, Maybe a couple of you know it, but all of us would be like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. He's going to use the language that we understand. And even though English is probably not the best language, any language is not the best language to communicate the amazing complexities of who God is, that's what he has because that's what we know. And the same thing with symbology. He's not going to come with the number 13 on his chest when he comes here because 13 means unlucky to us. Now, 13 doesn't really mean anything. 
But because we all interpret it as unlucky, it would not be good to be the Messiah of hope with a number 13 on you. And that's the way he's not now. And so he doesn't come. He's not going to come flicking everybody off and say, that really means I love you. Because it doesn't matter how much you say that, we can't get in our head that means I love you. And so he's going to use the language that we understand. And so the language that they understand is this layout. That's the culture they're from. Is it easier to use a language that people already understand to communicate who you are, or is it easier to teach them your language so you can start communicating to them who you are? And so use the language that they understand. So the tabernacle is not original to the Bible. And this is something that a lot of people point out, and they say, look, your God and your Bible is just a copy of everybody else because we found this stuff way before God came along in the book of Exodus. And you're like, okay, so what? But here's what's different. God often uses similarities to communicate huge differences. And all the other religions, the temples were always high up on mountains, distant and separated from everybody. But, or if they were down on the ground, they were way out, way, way far away from the civilization, the people, and you had to journey to get out there. And you know this. When you watch movies, into, even today, the, the most popular religion that keeps showing up all the time in movies is Buddhism and Hinduism. And every time in the Batman Begins movie and that kind of stuff, he has to go way, way far away, out in the middle of nowhere, climb this mountain to this, this temple, and that's where he's going to learn all the secret teachings of his art and become a better person. But the difference is that Yahweh takes the exact same kind of structure to communicate that I am the king and powerful, which is what a tabernacle communicates. But what he does is he puts it right on the dirt, right in the midst of the people, 10 to 20 feet away from them. And what he's saying is, but I, as the king of the divine, or I, as the divine king of the universe, came and dwell among you. I'm not putting myself way out in the wilderness. You don't have to climb a mountain to get to me. In fact, you don't have to do anything to get to me because I'm going to come down and put myself smack dab in the middle of you. And that's important to understand because that's the theme running all throughout the Bible. When God creates the garden, he comes down to the garden. When God creates the tabernacle, he puts the tabernacle in the midst of them. When God wants to speak to them, he brings a prophet to come and dwell with them. When Jesus ultimately comes, Jesus came and became one of us. In fact, John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then it says the word tabernacled among us. Your Bibles say the word dwelt among us, but it actually in the Greek it says tabernacled among us because he is the temple. And then when he sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came down and dwelt in us. And then the book of Revelation ends with the kingdom of God coming down to earth. The sun coming down to the earth. The lamb coming down to the earth. God coming down to the earth. God is always moving towards us. Yet, the opposite theme is being communicated. When they build the Tower of Babel, they build it, and they try to climb up to God through their own efforts, and they fail. Jacob is given a vision of a ladder where he's trying to climb up to God, and God shows him that I come down to you, because it's not people climbing the ladder in Jacob's vision like the Tower of Babel. It's God coming down the ladder. To Jacob in the vision. And so God is always communicating that we're always trying to send up the Godhood. That's why they even call it ascension in Buddhism and Hinduism and that kind of stuff. But God is always coming down with us. And this is powerful 
Because even though, yes, the structure, the blueprint of the tabernacle is the same as other religions, the way that it functions is completely different. In the same way that all of us have bodies that are structured the same way, but the way that we make them function is completely different whether you belong to God or not. And that's true with everything. The internet, no matter how you use it, it's structured the same, but the way that you use it and function it in a functional way depends on whether you're redeemed or not. And so God is communicating, I dwell with you. And he wants them to get all as close as they possibly can. Now what's other interesting is that most tabernacles and temples are way, way, way far away. The only time that we ever see an imagery of a king or a god with a whole bunch of people surrounding it is in military camps. This is how the Egyptian pharaoh organized his army. He, the pharaoh, would put his tent in the center of the camp and all of his, his closest guards, like our equivalent of the Secret Service or the Roman Praetorian Guard, would camp around closest to him, guarding him, and then his soldiers would camp around that in a square. And this is exactly how the pharaohs set up their military camps. So God is communicating two really powerful things simultaneously. One, I am your king who dwells among you, and you all can come close to me unlike every other God out there. But at the same time, we are a military nation because we're going to holy war. We're going to execute the righteousness of God. And this is what God is trying to communicate. Now, notice the Levites are in the center. When they march, Judah goes first. Now, the first thing that happens is the Shekinah glory of God lifts up and it moves off and it goes eastward. And then Judah and Zebulon and Iskar follow behind and they lead the march. And then Reuben leads Simeon and Gad and they lead the march. And then the Levites follow behind. And then the western led by Ephraim and the northern led by Dan. So basically what you have is you have God in the center when they're camping and God with the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the Levites is still in the center of the march. So God is always the central focus point, whether they're camping or marching. And and that's important because what he's communicating is I'm supposed to be in the center of everything. I am to be the focus of everything. And everything surrounds me because everything belongs to me and everything worships me. And so that's what he's trying to communicate with this structure. So by counting all these numbers, he now has his army. Then, in chapter 2, he begins to organize his army in the way that we described. Any questions? Some people read this, and they see it like, if you've got Judah and Issachar, I hope this makes sense, but it's hard to always show this. Some of these camps, like Zebulon and Gad, might actually be bumping up against each other instead of the Levites in the tabernacle. So some people read this and said, why does Judah and Reuben and Ephraim and Dan get to be right up against the Levites in the tabernacle, but the other ones are up against each other? If God's really trying to communicate the picture that they're all bumped up against the tabernacle, then they shouldn't be filling these corners. So some people have structured the tabernacle to look like that. Now, mainly when you see that, you think the cross, which is very theologically powerful because you've got Christ on the cross and Israel is the cross crucifying, so to speak. Especially when you have Christ saying, I am 
the temple or the tabernacle. Here's the problem. That could be true. The, the text never, ever, ever, ever says to camp out in such a way that the corners are not filled. What we know is the way that everybody is organized in the ancient world, they always organize themselves this way, in a military way. This is not how you organize yourself in a military way. But some people said, yeah, but it's God and he's foreshadowing Christ. But you have to be careful like reading Christ back into every little thing. Yes, Christ is foreshadowed in the First Testament. So I'm kind of torn. Is it possible that God, knowing what's coming, the cross, and wants to communicate a very powerful theological message, had them organized this way? Yes. But here's the other problem. Would that have spoken anything to them? No. And does anybody in the first, second testament ever make a reference to the layout of the tabernacle and the connection to Christ? Is it very possible that this is how they organize themselves? Yeah. It's hard to tell from the text. Theologically, it would be really cool to look back and say, wow, they were organized like a cross. And that's foreshadowing Christ. Yet nobody ever makes that point in the second testament. Historically speaking, it makes more sense for them to be organized this way because God is not trying to communicate to them Jesus is coming. He's trying to communicate that he is their king and they are his army. And that's a military point. All I want you to know is like if you Google this on the internet and this kind of stuff, and I used to believe it was a cross, but the older I got, I was like, I don't know. I feel like I was stretching things too much. I want you to know that you'll probably see a whole bunch of pictures of the cross. Is it possible that they organize that way? Yeah. But it doesn't really seem to fit the whole message of numbers and what God's trying to communicate. I don't think he's really trying to communicate right now a suffering servant that's going to die. What he's trying to communicate is, I'm your God. Obey me, and I'm leading you into war. And if you don't obey me, things are going to fall apart. They're not ready for suffering servant of God yet because they haven't even gotten the obedience to their military leader yet. So I don't think it fits the context of the book, even though it feels like it might fit the context of the entire Bible. But until, like, unless a Second Testament book said, that is the cross, I can't really be confident about that. So does that make sense? I just wanted you to be aware that thinking and that idea is out there. I struggle with it, but I'm not arrogant enough to say it definitely was not that way. So chapter 2 ends with they did everything that Moses commanded them. Now remember we talked about that in Leviticus and Exodus. That's a very important statement because you need to know that they were completely obedient. And so when they finished the tabernacle building it, it says they did everything that God commanded them to do, which means you know the tabernacle is designed and built exactly the way it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with the tabernacle. Then you need to know that they organize themselves around this exactly the way that God commanded them to do, which means the, the organization of the nation is exactly the way that God wants it. So you need to understand that they are obedient and that the house of God, the camp of God, looks exactly the way that God wants it to look. And that's important. So that's how this census and this organization of these 13 tribes ends in chapter 1 and 2.